Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. And today we're talking about protein again, but this time we're talking about protein from two different perspectives, focusing more on the quality of the protein and what it might mean when it's not the highest quality and how do we define quality. So here's, here's some of the details, right? There's we know that protein is so important from a health standpoint that we need a certain amount of protein. Now, falling back on the RDA of protein of 0.8 grams per kilogram is entirely insufficient from my standpoint because that's, that's to prevent a protein deficiency. When we're talking about optimal protein to maximize muscle mass and to improve lean mass while losing fat mass, so healthy weight loss, for improving metabolic health, for improving satiety, because higher protein diets have greater satiety, um, so you tend to eat less and fewer calories without even thinking about it, which is a complete win uh, from a protein standpoint. These are the things that I think about when, you th when we talk about importance of protein. And there we're talking about at least 1.6 grams per kilogram. But here's the thing. It's 1.6 grams per kilogram of a high-quality protein. As we're going to hear from some of our speakers, what does that actually mean? And, and why this is important, because of this... Um, you know, some people sort of promoting a plant predominant diet, a vegan diet as being better for the environment, better for your health, which I don't agree with. And we've had other episodes on that. Um, but what would that mean if that was instituted? What would that mean from a protein perspective, from a population standpoint? And how can we best assess that? Um, and one of the concerns is it could lead to decreased muscle mass, increased frailty, um, sarcopenia as we age, all these things that are, are definitely negative health consequences. So on today's episode, we have um, two different viewpoints. We've got Peter Ballerstadt, who's been on the, our show before, um, a forage agronomist who approaches things from, from both an, an animal and human perspective. And then we have Simon Hill, who, who is um, a very thoughtful um, and um, open vegan proponent and an author who's got his own podcast and he, he understands the science well and really helps analyze things critically. So I think it's a good combination of having the two, um, the two different viewpoints, uh, but yet both very reasonable um, and objective viewpoints to help us better understand the importance of protein quality. So without any further intro, let's get right into the episode. Now let's hear from Peter Ballerstadt. Now, Peter is uh, a forage agronomist and ruminant nutritionist. So what I really like about him is we talk to a human, people who are interested in humans, human health, human feeding, human food, while he's the representative for the cow feeding, the cow health, the cow food. Um, and he's sort of bridging the gap between the ruminants and the humans. Uh, he has a doctorate from the University of Kentucky. Uh, he is the president-elect at the American Forage and Grassland Council. And in starting back in 2007, he started on his own health journey, which really helped him sort of bridge the gap between his knowledge of feeding animals and feeding humans now. He's got his own YouTube channel. Uh, he's on Twitter and Instagram at, at grass-based. And he has a podcast, or as he calls it, a sodcast of Meet Your Herdmate. So he's always always fun and interesting to talk to. And he's going to tell us a lot about the specifics of protein and how a one gram of protein doesn't always equal one gram of protein, but how we have to be a little more considerate and thoughtful and how we're ranking protein and grading protein and some of the implications of that. So let's hear from Peter. Well, Peter, welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast. Brett, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's great to be back. Yeah, as I mentioned um, in the intro, we had you way back when in 2018, and so it's so great to see you again. And of course, I've seen you at so many different conferences. And and one of the things I really like about your message is you really, you can say you give us the perspective from the animals. The animals can't come and talk and give us their own perspective, but you're sort of the animal's representative is how I think about it, the, the ruminant representative. And, and one of the big concepts that you talk a lot about is that Protein does not equal protein. There are statements that we're meeting our protein targets, that as long as you're getting the same amount of grams in one type of protein, it's the same as you get in another kind of protein. So give us give us your sort of overview first about that general concept that protein doesn't equal protein, and then we'll dig into some of the specifics. Sure. Um, in many places, for example, on food labels, in tables of nutrient content, in environmental estimates, they're dealing with crude or gross protein. So crude protein is a technical term 
which is estimated by determining the percent nitrogen in a food or feed and then multiplying that number by 6.25 based on the assumption that all the nitrogen that was present in that food or feed was in protein and that that protein was 16% nitrogen. Now, that's been done for more than 100 years now, maybe close to 150. Um, and even in swine nutrition, for example, they have been balancing rations on an essential amino acid basis for almost half a century now. Um, but in so, conversation- so what do you mean by that? So rewind for a second. What do you what do you mean by by a, a individual mean, meaning they're not just using the nitrogen present, but they're actually evaluating the specific amino acids. So they're being more specific in the protein requirements for pigs than they are for humans, basically. Correct. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. Right. So you right. can you can use crude protein in ruminant rations. Although there's, depending on how high you want to push production, you may pay attention to some other parameters. But with a ruminant, a ruminant can use something that's called non-protein nitrogen, provided it will degrade in the rumen. So if there's nitrate, for example, or ammonia or amino acids or any other nitrogenous material, if it can be degraded in the rumen by the microorganisms, they will get those amine groups. They'll make their own uh, amino acids out of it. And what the cow does then is she digests the microorganisms. So that's part of this anaerobic fermentation process that is the hallmark of, of ruminant. Uh, digestion. So there's no such thing as an essential amino acid in a ruminants diet, but we of course do have them in human and other monogastric diets. Right. So I think that's a great point that that the the and the ruminants are able to sort of create their own amino acids that don't exist in what they're eating, whereas we cannot. So we have to eat our essential amino acids. We can't sort of create our own. But I really like that, that, that concept that we're more specific about the protein requirements of animals than we are about humans. And basically because, I mean, when you read the food labels and it says it's got X amount of grams of protein, if that's an animal source protein or a high quality source protein, then one equals the other. But if it's a lower quality protein, then it may not. And so tell us why not. Why wouldn't, you know, 20 grams of protein from a certain grain source actually equal 20 grams of protein for our body? Okay. This is a really important point. And to show how important it is, cereals provide as a group, so wheat, oats, barley, rye, those corn although corn I think might be classed as a coarse grain, but the cereal grains provide more protein to humanity's food supply than all animal source foods combined when we look globally. Mm. And wheat is the single largest supplier of protein. Now that's all crude protein. So this is not just some academic exercise we're engaged in here. This is critical. So the key issue with wheat, for example, is wheat is low in lysine. And lysine is um, globally a limiting essential amino acid, not surprisingly, given that wheat is the largest single source. Um, and so if you, if you compare what an adult needs in, pro in, in lysine, for example, from the protein, Wheat only supplies about half of what an adult would require. Um, the problem also gets compounded because when we process wheat, because very few people eat raw wheat kernels, we eat wheat <laughs> as you know bread or cereals or yeah. crackers or any of those things. In that processing, the lysine is made less digestible. So we can take something, the, the, the example is we take wheat, which is about 50-some, low 
uh, a 52 score on dias and we reduce it down into the 20s when we make whole wheat bread. Now, it's still mm. reported as having so many grams of protein per slice or what have you. Right. Um, right. But now explain those dias sorts of issues. Take a, take a second to explain yeah. dias. Sure. Dias is the digestible, mm -hmm. indispensable amino acid score. Um, it is the most current method of trying to get the ability to look at different foods and mixed diets and evaluate its protein quality uh, between different products. So to be an excellent source, it would be 100 or above. If it's good, I think it's 85 or above. Below 85, you can't really make a, a protein claim for it when you're talking mm. in trade or um, those sorts of situations. It's now, what, about eight years or so since um, some experts at the global level uh, agreed on this idea. Uh, for example, the previous system um, used rats as a model for determining digestibility, only looked at crude protein, and looked at fecal samples. Well, um, you can understand that fecal samples might get contaminated by microorganism uh, activity in the large intestine. So this is based on the, the best animal model is pigs, um, ileal cannulation, so that we can grab the samples between the small and large intestines so that we can see what's disappeared in the digesta as it goes from mouth to ileum and, and get a true measure of digestibility at that point. Well, sounds very specific and, and very well measured, something that obviously couldn't be done in humans, so it's done in, in yeah even in Dave Feldman to... even Dave Feldman won't volunteer for these <laughs> <laughs> we, we can talk him into it. I bet we could talk him into it. <laughs> I haven't so, been able so, to so far. <laughs> well so the uh, so so the concept is that this dias score tells you how useful the protein is um and then there's also how if there if it's deficient in any amino acids how bioavailable it is how how well you can absorb it and it gives a score based on that so um i mean i guess it's a simple question but what are some of the top protein sources that get the highest dias scores uh, the animal source foods, uh, dairy, meat, eggs, fish, shellfish, not a surprise. Right. Um, and surprise. one of the things that's interesting is work has been done to show that when we take, for example, beef and we make jerky or pork belly and we make bacon or pork and beef and we make lunch meats, we can actually increase the dias value over the raw. In, you know, so now we need to reevaluate what processed meats are. Um, mm -hmm. And also, though, if we overcook, so for me, that would be anything above medium rare on a steak, um, we can actually <laughs> begin to decrease, but not by a lot. I mean, we're talking about taking something from 110 to a high 90s. Uh, some key issues with dias. What dias allows people to do is to account not just for amount, but for digestibility. So again, mm -hmm. just because lysine's there doesn't mean it's digestible. And um, then it identifies what the limiting amino acid is and allows for other foods that have a different profile to possibly make up for those limitations. And so we get the ability to do that balancing, but we need to remember that has to happen within a meal. You, you can't right. eat a breakfast that's low in lysine and make up for that deficiency with a dinner that's high in lysine. It, it doesn't, we, we don't store that way. Um, and do you know what the that, time window is? Like, is it a, you know, in 30 minutes, I a two hour? Yeah, I think it, I, I would be guessing. I, I know Don okay. Lehman has talked about that. I know others have talked about that. Um, I remember right, asking so it's a good Don point, Lehman. Though. It's not that you can't, 
sorry, it's not, it's not that you can't get complete protein profiles from plant-based foods. It's not that you can't get an adequate amount of protein from plant-based foods, but it's also not fair to say 20 grams of plant protein is the same as 20 grams from a steak. But that seems to be the discussion that we see most often, that it's a, things are equivalent in protein, especially when it comes to these you know, new plant-based fake meat kind of burger products or, or meat products. So, so how do you kind of, what's the best way to assess that and understand um, if it's equivalent or how deficient is it or how do we overcome that for these, these new products? Yeah, I, I think where I am is people obviously should be free to choose whatever is appropriate to their circumstance, their choices, um, their situation. I want to make sure people have the information that they need to make informed decisions. And I'm certain that they don't at this point when it comes to protein um, on a number of levels. Um, Dr. Berg and Dr. Stein released a paper September uh, where they actually determined dias for Impossible and Beyond Burger. And Impossible Burger having soy qualified, um, I, I believe they both had at least good, no, I, I, yeah, I'm gripping on this one. Um, certainly the soy qualified for a good uh, protein score, but when you couple it with a wheat bun, and who's going to eat the patties without a wheat bun? The lack of <laughs> lysine in the wheat bun drop that meal below the good quality. Whereas if you Mm. ate a wheat bun and beef or pork patty, you would still have, you know, an excellent source of protein. So this is what we can begin to understand when we look a little deeper, that it's not just a presence of protein. Quality matters, how it combines with other foods matter. Um, and, and then the other thing that obviously we need to keep in mind is we're not only eating protein or amino acids, or these are coming in food and that food may or may not come with other nutrients that we need. And they all come with a caloric load and they all produce a certain metabolic effect based on the food itself. So there's there's a lot of these pieces that make it more complicated. Um, not, but yeah. I think you're aware, certainly others are aware that people have been looking at intake levels above the RDA for protein intake, and and so another of the complicating factors in this conversation is people look at RDA as if it's a target when it's a minimum. It's a floor, and not a ceiling. Exactly. And so, and, and then if you actually, when I read the definitions, they'll start talking about a reference protein, like 0.8 grams reference protein per kilogram body weight. Okay. Well, what's a reference protein? Oh, okay. That's defined as high quality protein. Okay, what is high quality protein defined as? Oh, meat, eggs, dairy, seafood. <laughs> but so okay, that would shift the conversation. And then of course we've got, you know, should it be more like one point, should it be more like one to one point two or you know, whatever that target is, again, we're talking about a high quality reference protein. So we, we've had these conversations and we're talking about something that I've become aware we don't always understand what it is we're talking about before we get wrapped up in how much of it we're talking about. So there's a couple levels there. And, and then this also comes back to an environmental conversation as well. Sure. Sure. And, and that's such a great point about understanding the definitions of what we're talking about. And that's, that's something that I, I haven't really heard mentioned until I heard you mention it about the reference protein used for the RDA, which means that if you're, if you're eating plant-based proteins, again, doesn't mean you can't get enough, but all of a sudden your RDA is more than 0.8 grams per kilo of body weight, but it's probably closer to 1.0. And again, that's a floor not something to shoot for. So that's a very important uh, point to make, especially with this 
push from well-funded organizations um, to sort of push more non-animal-based proteins. Um, and I think it's interesting, you know, I guess the, the critic in me says it's easy to sit in your multi-million dollar mansion and declare that the world should be eating, you know, non-animal-based protein. Oh. Sorry, the, not the you, the <laughs> metaphorical you. <laughs> the metaphorical you. The people who are, are, are sort of, you know, you, you hear these claims that we should eliminate all cattle and ruminants, that everybody should be eating um, the synthetic meat burgers instead of real animal burgers. And it's easy to sit there from a, from a privileged industrialized position. So, so it's easy enough to try and um, make your claims in an industrialized world where people can afford this and people have options. But what about the rest of the world? I mean, is this even, is, is this even possible for the rest of the world to reduce or eliminate animal sources of protein? There is no us and them when it comes to agricultural systems. There is no sustainable plant agriculture without sustainable livestock agriculture. And we can talk about those overlaps, beginning with things like over half of the world's fertilizer that's used to grow human edible crops comes from livestock. So you're going to take those away. And by the way, fertilizer prices are approaching record levels this year. So many shocks are still reverberating through systems. Um, most uh, the majority of the world's food is produced by low uh, smallholders in low and middle income countries. So what we entertain in the high income countries are just not available, let alone appropriate to the low and middle income countries. We have clear objective evidence of human beings being harmed by too little animal source food in their diet, whether that's stunting in children, which is not merely physical stature, it's also brain development. Um, you know, we have a third of women of childbearing age being anemic. Uh, the stunting rate is somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of children globally are stunted. I mean, this is a huge issue with a huge economic impact, let alone societal. Mm -hmm. And and the people working in those areas have done interventions with very modest amendments to the diets like an egg a day, um, making a dramatic improvement in the child's scholastic performance. So starting while mother is pregnant and then through nursing. So they talk about the first thousand days. Um, so that's just a reality. Um, the reality of livestock and cropping systems being interrelated. Um, we also have a growing awareness that producing crops with conventional cultivation leads to a degradation of soil, which is a fairly finite resource. Um, we have the majority of the earth's surface not being suited to tilling to produce those crops, but four or five times that amount of land is suitable for grazing, just to broadly define it. Um, yeah. and so, and so as we look toward the future, we have this tremendous opportunity to improve the productivity and efficiency of ruminant animal agriculture globally. And that improved efficiency will lower its environmental impact. Um, so the, there, there's another thing about the plant source foods that struck me and you could hear the hollow sound. Um, when I realized this, that in, in my training, we have spent years teaching people how to accurately sample a lot of hay, for example, and a lot is defined as one harvest off of one field of one variety. So you want everything as consistent as possible. You take samples, you then submit that sample for, for analysis at a laboratory. And it comes back and we've worked to, to make sure that the laboratories are certified so that you decrease laboratory variation as much as possible. The reason we do that is because hay can vary tremendously in its nutritive content. And I said, well, what about plant source foods? And sure enough, yeah. plant source foods vary. And you go to various tables 
and and there are varying amounts of samples that went into making that mean value that's put in the table and you know i'm pretty sure they're not printing a new label from batch to batch when they bring in a new load of soybeans and i looked right. at a large database of soybeans um it, that's used in breeding 6000 samples and there's a tremendous variation around that mean value which is typically used so now mm-hmm. we have an unknown variation in the ingredients coming in we're using this oversimplified value that doesn't represent what's biologically meaningful and then we're not taking into account the effect of processing on those meaningful values. So these are the sorts of things that make me say that we probably don't have the information that we need, let alone think we have, to make these kinds of decisions about how we're going to construct a, a diet of whatever form. And that gets back to maybe it's just simpler just to you know, eat some animal source food with your meal, whatever that is you choose. And again, if if you choose not to eat red meat, we could have a conversation about why. But at the end, as long as you're eating fish or poultry or dairy, I, that you know, you're still going to be getting what you need from those other animal source foods. And and so yeah, that's such a it's a great way to explain the details of why, like, if we went on some sort of a neither nationwide or worldwide experiment to say, we're all just going to get our protein sources from plants. We have no idea what's going to happen because of all these differences in how the protein, uh, how the protein, where the protein comes from, how it works in our bodies um, and what the long-term outcomes are from that. Now, not to say you can't be a healthy vegan. You certainly, you certainly can with a lot of precautions and and considerations like you're saying. Uh, So I think that's really good to understand the background and the details of why a protein isn't a protein. And and you've brought up the environment uh, a few times in such an important topic because it seems like this push for less animal meat really has shifted away from the health aspect more towards the environmental aspect. Um, And again, I think it's a little it's frequently just a little too much of a soundbite rather than the important details. And one of the important concepts is, well, we're using so much of this monotilling in this field for grain or sorry, monoculture tilled um, agricultural grain fields um, so that we can feed the ruminants so that we can feed the cows. And if we got rid of the cows, we wouldn't need as much land to grow, you know, corn, wheat, and soy. Now you're a, a, an expert in what cows eat. You're an expert in feeding cows. And, and so is that true? Is, are we spending all this land and resources to grow crops specifically to feed the, the livestock? No, it's not true. Um, and there's different ways you want to look at it. A typical commercial steer in the United States, a lifetime feed going into it, only about 10% of what it eats on a life cycle basis is human edible. Uh, Globally, it's somewhere like 4% uh, of the total feed going in to support all the domesticated ruminants. And a quarter of that 4%, so 1% of that, is grain that's not human edible for various reasons. So um, we have livestock as a key way to upcycle resources into highest quality feed food for us, feed animals, food for people. Um, and and so it's it's often treated as if it's an either or and again it's an integrated system Um, even in the united states as i mentioned the majority of the arable land is not dedicated for the production of feed for livestock now that goes against what many people understand, but we need to remember that when we produce soybean oil, a product I'm not a big fan of, but we produce a lot of it, we're left with soybean meal 
And it's the oil that drives soybean production, not the meal. The meal is a byproduct. So that's another example of how things can be misrepresented in the conversation. Another area is when people say, well, if we weren't feeding animals, then look at all the land, the farmland that goes to animals. And what they're equating wrongly is farmland with cropland. So arable land, land that can be tilled, cropland, those are all synonymous. All cropland is farmland, but not all farmland is cropland. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., we're richly blessed, but still it's something less than a quarter of the non-federal land in the United States is that class one, class two, which is the, the, the farmland, cultivatable land. So that leaves an awful lot of land that we can produce ruminant animals on from in a way that improves watershed health, pollinator habitat, wildlife, aesthetic values, um, you know, soil health, these what we call ecosystem services, benefits to society. Um, and so that's another reason for us to maybe take a step back. And what I keep hammering on is, yes, and that's before we've considered the improvement in public health that could come from shifting diets from processed plant products to a whole food diet that's not afraid of red meat, full fat dairy, seafood, eggs, those products. And when we include that, it just becomes an enormous win for us. And then we look worldwide and we realize just how many people in the world don't get enough today and must get more. You know, you can talk about the 2050 projections where by 2050, we have to double food production. We're going to have a two-third increase in demand for animal uh, protein. Um, and I argue that those are all sort of underestimates. Uh, one of the reasons is because the increase in population between now and 2050 or 2100 is going to come from old farts like me getting to be old farts. We're going to have the same number of children in 2100 that we have now. But the $2 billion is going to come from the 70 and 80-year-olds that get to live to be 70 and 80-year-olds. And we know that old farts like me need a higher quality diet as we age in order to age healthfully. So now we have this awareness of, an of a need for an increased dietary quality at the beginning of life and toward the end, please, um, toward, not at. Um, but in between, we still have questions about, you know, maybe some of these indispensable amino acid deficiencies are manifesting themselves in some interesting ways. And one example, it was a high point in my career so far as the sod father, um, was at San Diego after I spoke a surgeon came up to me afterwards, and he's a chronic pain surgeon. And he said, "When because from Dr. Berg, a week or so before I had attended a meat science conference, I had watched Dr. Berg and Dr. Adeshogun give presentations. And Dr. Berg's, he said, here are 10 studies in which we fed pigs adequate and deficient lysine diets. And here's what we see in terms of subcutaneous fat, intramuscular fat, and loin eye or back muscle size. And what we see is you know, significantly more subcutaneous fat, significantly more intramuscular fat, and smaller muscle size. And what the surgeon was telling me was that's what he was seeing in his patients. Mm. And he, he then explained to me that there's an association between intramuscular fat in the back muscles and chronic back pain. And what if what we're talking about is lysine deficiencies? Now, he's serving a lower socio socioeconomic population. So it's not hard for me to believe that their diets are very high in processed grain products. 
and we know that lysine is low to begin with, then we process it, we make it almost unavailable. Oh, maybe some of these things are being manifested in this suite of metabolic disease that we're seeing, or maybe it's a contributing factor in some case. Uh, you know, the whole diet um, uh, question of is, is protein actually driving ingestive behavior? Well, what part of protein and how has the crude protein versus amino acid content sort of, you know, we're, we're just going to mash that into one thing and call it protein. Well, how does that confound the conversation when you look at the data? Just like when you look at energy and you say, well, a calorie from starch and sugar is the same thing as a calorie from fat. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't think so. <laughs> and so, yeah. so those kinds of, of issues are present. And if you look back at the history of the dietary guidelines, I think it was only 2010 when they first specifically looked at protein. And I think it was in 2015 when they looked at NHANES data and said, well, protein isn't a nutrient of concern. Despite the data from NHANES showing that the majority of Americans aren't consuming enough and most females over age eight aren't consuming enough, and that was based on an RDA that arguably is too low, and number two, considering all protein as if it's equivalent. So it's worse, and yet they come to the conclusion that protein isn't a nutrient of concern. And then that spins out worldwide because a similar conversation takes place. And Moen, and I think it was last spring or summer, released a paper where they basically deconstructed that by looking at, he used the term gross protein, same as crude protein in like 103 countries and territories. And in only a few were they below the target. Okay. So some would look at that and say, see, protein isn't a nutrient of concern. But then they went in and they said, well, how much of that protein is digestible? And then how much, uh, how, how is that providing the lysine that's necessary? And when they did that, then it's like a hundred and, you know, some of these, they're not meeting. The, the goals. And then he also went and looked at that in terms of environmental impact. And when you look at environmental impact on a lysine basis, instead of a crude protein basis, it, it decreased the emission intensity in the case of dairy compared to others by a factor of 100 and shifted ordering. So it puts everything within the same sort of ballpark. And there's some more things there. One, again, it's not only protein, as important as protein is, but there was also the IPCC report in August that admitted that using GWP100, I'm sorry, um, to estimate the global warming potential for enteric from the rumen methane was overestimating its impact by a factor of three to four times. Hmm. So by looking at actual digestible amino acids, we reduce it by 100, put it on par, and then if we shifted from GWP100 to GWP star, as the IPCC suggests, we would then cut it by a third and make it better than Okay, so so this whole conversation space shifts when we get the right metrics involved. IPCC stands for Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And the GWP100 is the global warming potential 100, and GWP star is another global warming potential metric for the short-lived emissions like enteric methane. Oof, that was a mouthful. But I think that's a great place yeah. to stop. I think that like, okay. it sums it up great. So thank you. Next, we're going to welcome back Simon Hill from plantproof.com. Uh, he's a, a 
a physiotherapist and has a master's in nutrition science. And he's, he's definitely a proponent of vegan and plant-based diets, but a proponent in, in a very balanced and reasonable way, focusing on the science and trying to get away from the dogma and the diet wars. He's at plantproof.com and has um, a book and a podcast by the same name and is on Instagram and Twitter at the same name at, at plantproof. Um, at one point in this discussion, we talk about nutrients of concern and nutrients that could be deficient um, in a vegan diet. And rather than spending the time for him to provide his insight, which he has a lot of insight on, on how to overcome those, if you're interested in that, I definitely direct you to his book, his Plant Proof book, because he goes through all that, all those details um, in his book. But here we talked more about sort of the specifics of protein on a plant-based diet. Um, and he has some very good insight on that and, of course, on the nutrients concerns and how that applies to industrialized versus developing wor world. And I really liked his perspective on how we have an ethical obligation if we're going to recommend any sort of diet to make sure it is a complete and healthy diet. I think that's a very key takeaway that, that I'm going to steal from him and use over and over again because I think that was really important. So, so here's a discussion with Simon Hill. All right, Simon. Well, we just heard about the importance of protein quality and how animal and plant protein quality are not the same in terms of the essential amino acids, in terms of the bioavailability. Um, but obviously that doesn't mean that you can't get adequate protein from a plant-based diet. So I wanted to hear you from a, a, a practical perspective. You know, what, if someone's following a plant-based diet, whether high carb or low carb, what are the considerations that you do practically to make sure you're getting ample protein? Sure. So uh, the first thing that I like to remind people is that all plants do contain all nine essential amino acids. They, they are just in ratios to animal foods. Uh, and sometimes the definition of complete and incomplete can be misunderstood in the general public. Incomplete protein doesn't mean that that protein is missing one of the nine essential amino acids. It just means that it is in a, in a, a low enough, uh, concentration such that if you were to eat that own that that food for all of your calories you would not meet your daily requirement for that essential amino acid. so uh, that can be particularly important particularly in developing countries or places where there's poor food accessibility when you start to eat a mixed meal diet where you have uh, beans and whole, whole grains and you have fruits and vegetables and you have nuts and seeds all of these foods have have all of those nine essential amino acids, but in different ratios. And uh, so if you're eating enough calories and you are what I call protein aware, which I think is important because in the plant-based community, there is this rhetoric that we don't need to focus on protein at all. It just takes care of itself. That's not really the case. I've seen incidences where that's not the case. And yeah. so you want to be protein aware. Most of your protein is going to come from that legume food group. And so I really want people that I want people to focus at every single main meal to make sure that they, they are having a, a very good serve of legumes and they're not avoiding that food group. When you avoid that food group on a plant-based diet, where you're more likely to run into problems from a Now, how much protein do we need? This is heavily debated. I think the RDI is a little low at 0.8 grams per kilogram for a kind of the sedentary person. Uh, I, I tend to side with a lot of the protein researchers out there. You probably had some of them on your show. Uh, and, and I tend to side that I think that minimum should be really up about 1.2, 1.3 grams per kilogram. And, and then higher if you're an athlete or you're looking for more body composition sort of specific goals. Um, and, and I think that is particularly important for plant-based eaters. And I say that because you mentioned bioavailability and absorption. And when we look at the studies looking at bioavailability and absorption, we do need to, we need to, we just, we need to make sure we're interpreting them correctly. So a lot of the studies comparing animal and plant protein uh, were studies uh, from early 2000s, even 90s, looking at rats and pigs and they're mm -hmm. feeding, feeding these animals different foods and looking at how much protein is actually absorbed. And uh, of course, animals have different, uh, these animals have different physiology to humans. But I think what's most interesting about these, these uh, different uh, clinical studies is that 
they were feeding these animals raw plant protein in almost every single study. And that's a, that's, that's a problem because we know that cooking legumes or cooking grains, for example, actually increases the amount of protein that is available to us. And so if you just look at those studies, you're going to see a misrepresentation of the difference between animal and plant protein bioavailability when these foods are consumed as you and I would actually consume them. So if we carry forward to research that's been carried out more so in the last five, 10 years and in humans, there, there is an update on the differences in bioavailability. And there still is a difference, but what we see is with more isolated plant proteins. So let's say someone, you know, a bodybuilder or someone, an athlete is having a pea protein shake or a soy protein shake or these isolated plant forms. Bioavailability of those is very, very high. It's almost comparable to your animal proteins and, 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 and to a point where you're likely not to see any sort of clinical significant, clinically meaningful difference between them. Um, as you start to go towards a more whole food, like a legume, the bioavailability does drop off. And that is because there are things like phytates and other compounds that will bind that protein and fiber, which makes it less bioavailable, right? Now that difference is probably around, you know, 10%. Some, some sources will say it's 20%. So we could, if we factored that in, that's where I think bumping up from 0.8 grams per kilo to 1.2, 1.3 grams per kilo makes sense, particularly for this population who are not eating animal foods. Um, so that would be, I guess, my, my thoughts around bioavailability. Uh, were, you, was, were you also wanting to know where you would get that from? If I answered no, all I, that? I think that answers it well. No, I think that answers it very well. That, that, uh, yeah, I think you did a good job with that. Yeah, so that, that addresses protein pretty well. That, that definitely higher than the RDA, which you know the RDA is to prevent deficiencies anyway. So you want to be higher than the RDA. And you mentioned if you're if you're very active or athletic, then you want to be even higher. And I throw in there as you age, you want to be higher as well because you really need to protect bones and muscles and so forth. Um, so there is this sort of gradation that a, aiming towards the higher end of that spectrum is likely beneficial, especially if you're getting it from plants. Um, and, and I really like your term protein aware, that you need to be protein aware and really prioritize protein and don't just assume you're going to get enough. I think that's, that's a great point. And I think that also think, holds true. Oh yeah, please go ahead. One, one thing I just thought, sorry to interrupt you that I might add there is that often we, we can get caught up in this, uh, discussion around bioavailability and thinking about percentages. It can get a little reductionist and it's interesting but also I think sometimes, and this is a general rule of thumb for science, is that we should, we should always be aware of zooming out and looking at health outcomes, a mm -hmm. harder outcome, something that's more meaningful to you and I, because for you and I, you know, if we're talking about a black bean and we're looking at the percentage of absorption, that's not that meaningful. But what's meaningful for me is if I eat a diet that contains those foods, can I build muscle? Can I increase my strength? And to, to what is it to, to what extent is that different to someone who is eating animal protein? And there was the first study that has, has looked at this came out in 2021, uh, that looked at a completely omnivorous diet against a completely, uh, plant exclusive diet. And I say, this is the first study because previous one, previous studies looking at at people doing resistance training uh, with different diets, often what they would do is add a soy or a pea protein shake on top of an omnivorous diet in that group. And so it's not really giving you this comparison of a, of a completely plant diet against an omnivorous diet, which is what this study set out to do. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, this paper, it was out of Brazil. Uh, and it was actually a collaboration between Hamilton Rochelle and uh, Stuart Phillips. And, and so they, they had a 12 week resistance training program twice a week. They were doing like a full body sort of workout. Um, and the, the really important thing that they achieved in this study was both groups that their diets contained 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram, which is like that bottom end of that, that sort of point where we see, uh, optimal, muscle protein synthesis yeah. and 
And so what they found was, uh, you know, across this study, they were doing the resistance training. And at the end, there was no significant difference between increases in lean muscle and increases in strength. Now, that's, that's in one population. These were healthy adults. They were uh, males, so, so didn't include females. And as you said, things change as we get older. We get anabolic resistance. So I would like to see that type of study carried out in other populations. But it, it is a reminder, I think, of a couple of things here when it comes to protein is that, particularly with strength athletes, is that by far the most important thing is the stimulus, is resistance mm -hmm. training. And often right. we get carried away so, on social media and it's about the source of the protein is taking up all of the airtime. And the work from that study, at least in that population, suggests that what's most important is the stimulus and then making sure you're getting enough protein. So when I'm working with plant-based folks, particularly if they're interested in building strength and muscle, that's, that's what I'm working with them. That's what I'm getting them to focus on from a protein point of view. How can they consistently hit 1.6 grams per kilogram or a little bit higher? have some um sort of buffer there and and so uh, that's another point that i think is is worth us considering as we sort of step back and zoom out on this topic yeah so many great points there too that that what outcome are you looking at and if your outcome is strength and building muscle mass which is such an important outcome when we're talking about protein then it's the stimulus the resistance training and making sure you get the right amount not the 0.8 grams but double that at 1.6 and if you do that with a plant-based diet if you're already healthy you can get there i think that's such a good point and i love the caveats you threw in there too about as we age and if we're not as healthy as the people in the study different genders those have to be studied but definitely laying the groundwork to to show that at high enough levels you can equilibrate it which i think is so important so protein aware, very important. And what about, you know, B12, vitamin D, iron, DHA, you know, it's, 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 there are other things that you have to be aware of, um, when you, when you're cutting out, um, animal source meats or sorry, animal source foods that you obviously can get. So how aware do you think people who are, um, plant predominant or plant-based need to be about these nutrients? I think that we would be kidding ourselves if we thought that any dietary pattern didn't involve some level of planning. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I call these nutrients a focus. And again, you know, I like to sit on the fence here. I was reading a, a, a study uh, that came out uh, last week looking at 100, it was a better analysis of 141 studies looking at nutrient intake and status of omnivores, vegetarians, and vegans. And, you know, they, they showed that all of these groups actually have nutrients of focus. There was nutrient inadequacies across all of those dietary patterns. So it's not just a vegan thing, but what, what's important here is that the nutrients of focus for vegans and vegetarians, they are different to omnivores. So you do need to be aware of them. And much of this is getting educated and then setting up your routine, routine or your regime to make sure you're getting them. And you can kind of set and forget of course, you can do your laboratory tests and uh, you're going to have a yearly check with your physician and you can sort of check in on how things are going, but it's not taking up a whole lot of your thinking day to day once you get across the information, but you yeah. need to get across it. If you just blindly remove animal products from your diet then and you're not planning for this, you could run into problems and you probably will. And studies show that. So B12, you mentioned, for example, we know if you adopt a plant-based diet and you're not supplementing B12, your levels start to decline. It's very, very clear. And it's also very clear the best way to maintain healthy B12 status is through supplementation. So uh, basically uh, vegans or uh, plant exclusive eaters, there's, there's sort of three options. One is fortified foods. And it's, it's sort of the least reliable option because uh, due to physiology, and we won't go into the details of this, but you need to be consuming those fortified foods across the day at about three different time points. And so I find that people can be a bit forgetful. And if you're like me, that's that's certainly not something I want to be keeping track of every day. Yeah. But you can do it. You can do it. And more and more now, plant-based milks and various products that do, do have B12 uh, in them, similar to uh, folate in some products in the food. And so that's option one. Option two is a daily supplement 
of 50 to 250 micrograms per day. Uh, and then option three is a weekly supplement of about 2,000 to 2,500 micrograms. And importantly, one thing that I like to remind people here is when you, when you go to your uh, doctor and you request a blood test, when you measure serum B12, it's actually not that sensitive to B12 status. And there's a reason for that. And that is that there are a lot of inactive analogs, B12 analogs in our blood. So when we measure just straight serum B12, we can pick up a lot of these inactive analogs. We might get a, 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 a false um, sense of security there. We might think mm -hmm. our B12 status is healthy, but really uh, we have we haven't considered the fact that there are these inactive analogs. And so there is a better test called Holo TC, which I recommend that anyone who's following a plant-based diet uh, runs at least initially during the transition period and after a couple of years to check your, your B12 status is, is healthy. Uh, you mentioned iodine. Iodine is another uh, important one. There is uh, quite clear data that pescatarians, vegetarians, and vegans tend to have lower iodine status of course, very important for the production of our thyroid hormones, regulation of our metabolism. And uh, there are a few different options, again, for getting uh, iodine within a, a plant-based diet. You can consume dulse and wakame flakes. These are types of seaweed. Uh, that, that, again, it's similar to the fortified foods. It's, it's, it's not my favorite option of, of the three that I'm going to go through. And the reason for that is that the iodine concentration in these seaweeds can vary around the world, uh, depending on where it's sourced from. Yeah. Well, let, let, sorry. Let me interrupt you for a second, though. And I guess, I guess the point is that um, that that there are plenty of of options for circumventing these nutrients of concerns to to replace them across the board. And I, I guess the, I guess that's the main point because we hear like it's a nutritionally insufficient diet. Well. That may be true, but there are other, like you said, there are other nutritionally insufficient diets that have nutrients of concerns, and you can work your way around those by supplementing. But what about, um, in, again, comparing sort of the industrialized world to the developing world where maybe these things aren't as prominent? Do you see that, or sorry, the, the replacements aren't as prominent? Do you see that as a, as a risk and as a concern if this, um, if this push for a plant-predominant diet filters out to the industrial industrialized world where you can't test and you can't supplement quite as easily as we can? Certainly. I, I mean, I think we have a duty to make sure everyone has a nutritionally adequate diet. And I, I would like to think that those that are planning on the development of food systems in populations are looking at the data and the research and are making sure that, that if we're telling people to eat a certain dietary pattern, that they have the available foods there to achieve nutritional adequacy. And, and really, you know, sad in many of these populations, they do not, they currently do not have access to a nutritionally adequate diet. And so, uh, you know, I want to make it clear at no point I, do I think we should be recommending people eat a, a certain dietary pattern where they cannot achieve nutritional adequacy. That would be completely unfair and unethical. So, uh, yeah, I think we, we have a duty of care to make sure that that food system is constructed in right now. Excellent. Well, well, thank you again so much for your, for your balanced approach and your thoughtful approach. I think, I think we can learn a lot from your approach and, um, a lot of the specifics about how we see nutrition, how we see outcomes and how we approach it. So thank you so much for your time. Well, there you have it. Two different viewpoints about, uh, protein quality, the, impro the importance of protein quality, how to assess it. And I guess also more importantly, how to incorporate that into individual decisions on how you decide how much protein to eat and what protein sources you're using. Now, look, I think it's pretty clear whether you want to be carnivore or whether you want to be vegan or anything in between, it is perfectly reasonable that you can maintain and achieve your protein goals, that you can eat a high-protein vegan diet, that you can eat a high-protein carnivore diet and everything in between, and then you can eat moderate protein diets as well. Um, I think it's clear, though, it's important to get above that 0.8 grams per kilogram goal that we should be focusing on, you know, 1.5 to 1.6 grams per kilo for most people. Obviously, there's going to be some variation in there. But whether that comes from plant sources or animal sources, it's all going to work out okay. 
my perspective is animal sources is certainly easier, right? It's more bioavailable. It's higher quality. It's more complete. There's less to think about. Um, vegan sources, plant sources tend to come with higher carbs, higher calories. They need to be mixed and matched a little bit more to think about, but that by no means is that a, a complete barrier to doing it. Absolutely. You can still do it. It's just, what's your preference, right? So, um, I think that's the key about understanding the importance of protein quality, the bioavailability, the, the contribution to uh, lean mass and fat mass loss and and uh, satiety and appetite and the importance of protein for that, and then making the right decisions based on your individual um, nutritional preferences, your dietary pattern, um, what you like and don't like, and then factoring that into the logistical factors. So uh, I think it was a good exploration of the different aspects, but it really does come down to you can make this work however you want to make it work. Just understand the details as you're constructing your dietary pattern. All right, well, thanks a lot for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Diet Doctor Podcast.